Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Professor Sergio Kleinerman. He is the Eugene Higgins Professor of Mathematics here at Princeton University, a MacArthur Fellow, and a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the Academy of Arts and Sciences, and foreign member of the French Academy. Professor Sergio Kleinerman, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Now, listeners may have seen your name or heard your bio there, and they might be thinking we'll be discussing general relativity or your work on the mathematical theory of black holes, but I certainly will not be the one who conducts that interview. We have you with us today to discuss, among other things, your recent essay on Alexander Solzhenitsyn's 1978 speech, A World Split Apart, delivered at Harvard University. But let's start at the beginning. You were born in communist Romania. Tell us about what you experienced growing up. What did you see? Well, okay. So uh, to start with, I was born to Jewish parents who at the time uh, of the Second World War, which was a great, great peril for the Jewish community in particular, uh, they embraced communism uh, as some form of salvation. as we know, at the heart of uh, communism lay a doctrine of ra- radical equality and social justice in complete contradiction to the Western ideas of individual freedoms. Yet, my parents, along with many other well-intended Eastern European victims, believed that only communists had the power to save the world from the reality they were faced with, which was, at that time, war, exploitation, racism, anti-Semitism, and economic injustice. So for me, the circumstances of being born in such a family gave me this unique vantage point from which to observe and reflect on the system. To start with, I was intoxicated from a very early age with heroic myths about how self-selfless Soviet communists were building the best possible society while crushing the futile resistance of vicious reactionaries. I was brainwashed to think that Soviet Union was a paragon of all virtues to the point that I was absolutely shocked at the first, the first time, which must have been at the age of seven or eight, when an older kid on my street started to criticize the uh, Soviet Union. And uh, it's, it's interesting, I can trace back all my later ideological development to that moment. Determined to convince myself that the kid was wrong, I began to listen carefully to any type of criticism of Soviet Union and communism with the hope that it could be debunked. Many such opportunities came in the form of family discussions where my brother, who was older than me, was bombarding my parents with uncomfortable questions, pointing out absurdities in the party propaganda he was fed at school. So my father, as I have learned later, developed himself serious doubts about the system from the time he spent in Moscow in the early 1950s while pursuing an advanced medical degree. And uh, uh, faced with this kind of criticism from my brothers, he was defensive and even angry. 
uh, his standard reply, elaborated in more vivid terms by my mother, was that we kids had no understanding whatsoever of how much worse the previous regime was. This kind of talk, of course, did not help my growing doubts. The biggest shocks for me came later at around age 15, 16, when I devoured books like Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kessler, which was inspired by the Stalinist show trials and Orwell's groundbreaking Animal Farm in 1984. I still remember vividly the excitement and fear these books have generated in me. What were before growing doubts became now direct challenges to the core of uh, my communist uh, ideology. At seven, seven, between, at around 718, I started to engage in small activities of resistance. For example, a philosophy reading group, uh, which some friends, I organized with some friends of mine, where we went through classical philosophy texts, uh, like Plato, Aristotle, and others. And uh, well, this activity <laughs> was considered reactionary in Ceausescu's Romania. Uh, there are other activities which may be a little bit more dangerous, but in any case, uh, uh, you get the point. Another important element in my ideological transformation was a direct challenge to the official propaganda by Radio Free Europe, a United States government-funded organization that broadcasted news and analysis of events to countries in Eastern Europe. One of my most cherished memories of my youth is listening and commenting together with my father, who had by now completed his own awakening, and uh, we were commenting the daily evening, <clears throat> they were listening together the daily evening news broadcast by the Free Europe in Romania. In Romania. The station was for us the window to the world, and this was true for many other millions of Romanians at the time. I also became attracted to mathematics, uh, not only because I was good at it, but also because it offered a space largely immune to party ideology, an isolated island where intellectual honesty was still possible. Mm. And this was one reason why mathematics has attracted a lot of talented individuals. This and other reasons, of course, uh, attracted a lot of talented individuals everywhere in the Eastern Bloc. So, uh, as I said at the beginning, this type of situation, being born in a communist Romania, but also in a communist family, gave me a wonderful place from which to analyze somehow the system. So what are the main lessons that I got out of it? So first of all, the experience of my parents, sincerely attracted by the professed ideology of communism, when they were very young themselves, led me to develop a keen sense of how the best of intentions can lead to terrible consequences. I have learned that societies which sacrifice freedom in the name of equality are doomed to get neither. And indeed, by sacrificing freedom, communists produced not only an unfree society, but one in which poverty, exploitation, and the new and more insidious kind of inequality with a small elite of the party members at the top, enjoying enormous privileges relative to the rest of the population. Another thing that I learned is that uh, totalitarian societies produce this kind of schizophrenic realities, which by the way, you, we start seeing maybe a little bit here also now, but of course it's nothing uh, compared to uh, what I saw. Uh, so this is a schizophrenic reality between the official and the person. 
The official reality of Ceausescu's Romania, fed from early morning to night on the radio, on TV, in newspapers, movies and books, in classes, meetings, etc., was his constant celebration of the great achievement of the party and its leader, say Ceausescu, for example. I knew, besides Ceausescu, I also knew Gheorghe Gutej when I was much younger. The other reality was a personal vivid and uh, the experience of interminable lines for food, the most basic supplies, the, arbitra the arbitrariness and stupidities of armies of bureaucrats with which the regime was uh, exercising its power, the pervasiveness of the police and security forces inform us everywhere, the tired and beaten faces of people on the street, the automatic thoughtless praises for the party and its policies we were forced to express in our classes, meetings and demonstrations, the reality of widespread hypocrisy, cynicism, corruption, and often despair, but also that of the quiet resistance of the population manifested in jokes and private expressions of disgust among close friends and family. Any form of resistance to the goal of communist states were deemed to be either reactionary or due to false consciousness. That is, to use a fashionable word nowadays, unconscious bias in favor of ideas being forced by the party. The first type, the reactionary types, were repressed by death, prison, or camps, while the second, these kind of biases, so-called, were thought to be reformable by a vast, unprecedented array of education and re-education means, including mm -hmm. schools and universities and cultural institutions. And yet again, paradoxically, this did not produce a new man envisioned by the communists, but rather widespread cynicism, apathy, resentment, hypocrisy, and dissimulation. The total failure of this policy became painfully obvious. For example, when after the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, the region experienced an ugly spasm of ethnic and racial, racial violence, despite all the brouhaha that the, the party ideology made about how we should, we should not uh, accept uh, any kind of ethnic or racial bias. Mm -hmm. And the pressure to conform, people chose instead to pretend to conform while allowing themselves the freedom to think whatever they please, which was often in opposition to the monolithic viewpoint they publicly professed. The Gedankes in Fry, thoughts are, thoughts are free. This last point is particularly relevant today when we hear more and more calls for mandatory training courses to combat unconscious bias and promote the ever-expanding mantra of diversity, equity, and inclusion, repeated ad nauseum by our cultural elites. Right, and we'll turn in a little bit to these calls for these sorts of things that you talk about, mandatory anti-bias training and the like. But of course, you and I are not having this conversation in communist Romania. We're both speaking to one another from Princeton, New Jersey, where you hold a distinguished endowed professorship. So how, how did you come to the United States? Uh, well, actually, I, I, I started to dream about escaping Romania by the time I was uh, 17 or 18. Uh, after, uh, as I explained, after I went through this period of, uh, of sort of awakening, if you want. Uh, an opportunity arose later when I was at university, a uh, student at university, uh, when I had received a fellowship for graduate study at the Courant Institute at New York University. It took me, however, so obviously I applied, I was hoping to, to get permission, of course I didn't. It took me about three more years after 
I got this uh, fellowship before I was allowed to leave, but not to study in U.S. as I originally asked, but to actually emigrate to Israel. So this is another long story how how that happened. There was an open of there, there was a window of opportunity which was open uh, at the time when when Ford uh, came to Romania. This was uh, an official visit which was very important to my getting out. Anyway, but that's a long story. Uh, and I, I arrived in, uh, in Tel Aviv by the end of August 1975, but I had to leave uh, to go to, uh, to the Quran Institute at NYU. And therefore six weeks later, I really started my studies there. Quran Institute, uh, the famous mathematical institute, was kind enough to keep renewing my fellowship. It's, uh, Kind of funny first encounter that I remember uh, with a graduate student advisor uh, that I saw when when I came at first time on first day when I came at Quran when um, she told me that uh, well it's, it's good that you are here but this was your last chance uh, <laughs> so anyway this is how I got to to United States I mean it was really my dream to get out. Let's turn now to Alexander Solzhenitsyn and to the main thrust of our discussion, which is your excellent reflections on his 1978 speech, A World Split Apart. For listeners who aren't familiar with the speech, can you give us an overview of what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that day in 1978 at Harvard University? What are the main themes of his speech and what should be our main takeaways today? Yes. So uh, to start with... uh Solzhenitsyn surprised everybody. Uh, they all expected a celebratory speech about the superiority of the American system over the Soviet one. Instead, they got a devastating critique of the Western societies, which Solzhenitsyn characterized as spiritually weakened by rampant materialism. Uh, so for me, when I first heard this speech in 1978 as a young refugee from Romania, I was able to appreciate Solzhenitsyn's address in terms of the competing, <coughs> competition raging at the time between the West and the East, but did not comprehend its larger meaning. We're reading today in the fall of this horrible year, 2020, <laughs> I find parts of it truly prophetic. Uh, Solzhenitsyn was able to discern 40 years ago that the West was, is being gradually losing the will and intellectual ability to defend itself, not so much against foreign armies, as it may have appeared in 1978, uh, but against an army of internal critics determined to demolish everything the West used to stand for. So, uh, yeah, so here are maybe the main themes of the address. Uh, In the central part of the address, Solzhenitsyn said, uh, a decline in courage, he says, may be the most striking feature which an outside observer notices in the West in our days. But a decline in courage is, a part, is particularly noticeable among the ruling groups mm. and the intellectual elite, causing an impression of loss of courage by the entire society. And then he says, uh, really scary thought, uh, should one point out, scary observation, I should say, should I point out, he says, that from ancient times, declining courage has been considered the beginning of the end. In another remarkable passage, Solzhenitsyn asked a truly <coughs> crucial question and of great relevance to us today. So he, he asked, how could the West, with such splendid historical values in its past, lose the will to defend itself? Mm. So then he goes to ask rhetorically, 
how has this unfavorable relation of forces come about? How did the West decline from its triumphal march to its present sickness, as he, he says? Uh, and uh, going further, uh, having, so he asks again, has there been any kind of turns, any fatal turns and losses of direction in its development? It does not seem so. The West kept advancing in accordance with its proclaimed intentions with the help of brilliant technological progress. And all of a sudden, it found itself in its present state of weakness. So this is, these are exactly his words. So, uh, so Jensen concludes that the mistake must be at the root, at the very basis of human thinking in the past century, he says. He refers to the prevailing Western view born during the Renaissance and which found its political expression during the Enlightenment. He says that this uh, view became the basis for government and social science and could be defined as rationalistic humanism or humanistic autonomy. It could also be called anthropocentricity, he says, with man's seen as the center of everything that exists. Enlightenment promised to get rid of traditions and religion in favor of societal arrangements based on reason alone. And uh, of course, it didn't not work very well, as Solzhenitsyn observes. Uh, so here is sort of my personal comment. Reason alone, and this I, I note in my article on Solzhenitsyn, seems often to run in circles, sterile and inca incapable of making choices. Even science and mathematics require major leaps of faith. For example, in mathematics, every new deep theorem starts with a leap of faith, followed by reason arguments, followed by new leaps of faith. And it's exactly this interaction between reason and faith, uh, which plays a fundamental role in just about anything that humans do, particularly in science, science and mathematics. It is telling to note, uh, in this sense, that the ph philosophical conceit of modern ra rationally thinkers, starting with Descartes, the truth ought to be discovered by reason alone, has led instead to the opposite conclusion embodied in the radical relativism of postmodern thinkers, such as Foucault and Derrida. So, uh, so this is something uh, really uh, one can, I can probably one can go uh, write a book about this, but it's, it's obviously a very interesting thought. In any case, Solzhenitsyn says, again, the West ended up by truly enforcing human rights, sometimes even excessively, but men's sense of responsibility to God and society grew dimmer and dimmer. Solzhenitsyn also points out that humanism, divorced from its religious roots, is no match for the current materialism of the left. In his words, liberalism was inevitably displaced by radicalism. Radicalists had to surrender to socialism, and socialists could never resist communism. So in a similar vein, and this is another thing that I, I write in my article on Solzhenitsyn, Hazoni, Yoram Hazoni, writes in, uh, in a recent article in QLED. He describes, in fact, this, what he calls this dance between liberals and Marxists, which is very similar to what Solzhenitsyn says. So uh, the step one of the dance is that uh, enlightenment liberals observe that inherited traditions are always flawed or unjust in certain ways. And for this reason, they feel justified in setting inherited tradition aside and appealing directly to abstract principles such as freedom and equality. Step number two, liberals declare that henceforth all will be free and equal, emphasizing that reason and not tradition will determine the content of each individual's right. Step number three, Marxists exercising reason point 
many genuine instances of unfreedom and inequality in society, decrying them as oppression and demanding new rights. Step number four, liberals embarrassed by the presence, by still the presence of unfreedom and inequality, after having declared that all would be free and equal, adopt some of the Marxist demands for new rights. The dance then continues by iteration with never-ending new demands by the Marxists. So what are the main takeaways from Solzhenitsyn's uh, article? So Solzhenitsyn, of course, talks about this loss of courage and faith. And uh, it's pretty clear from what he says that the loss of courage is a direct consequence of loss of faith. So the crucial challenge posed to us by Solzhenitsyn is as follows. How did the West lose its faith in itself? Despite the, this, what he says is progressive in a context to his proclaimed intentions. How can the process be reversed? Anyway, so I, I took from this uh, text two important themes which I believe are relevant for the task of answering the central challenge. So again, the central challenge is how, how could this happen that starting with this wonderful uh, ideology of the alignment and just progressing according to you know, exactly the intentions uh, that were proclaimed by the Enlightenment, we came to this uh, crisis. And of course, the other question is how can the process be reversed? So, uh, so the two things that uh, I took out of it is that one is a growing imbalance between rights and individual obligations and what can we do about it? And the second is a loss of faith. So, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's so, right. So, so maybe we can begin with that growing imbalance between rights and obligations. Could you draw out for us first, what does it mean to have a balance between rights and obligations? And why is that balance so important, right? We don't often talk about these things as being in balance. We emphasize here in America rights over obligations. So what's so important about that balance? Yes. So, uh, Solzhenitsyn remarks that Western society places a strong emphasis on freedom and rights. In the US in particular, these rights are staunchly defended by the constitution and implemented by a legalistic process uh, based on specific rules, which studiously avoids making non-legal moral judgment. This, by the way, was a serious problem for Solzhenitsyn, who thinks that any kind of reasonable justice system should include moral judgments. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he, he clearly doesn't quite understand our, our system of the rule of law. At the same time, he observed that there has been a notable decline in individual obligations or personal responsibility. These values, of course, though nowhere to be found in the Constitution, uh, their importance was taken for granted by our founders. Personal responsibility, uh, our founders sought, was naturally enshrined in an education steeped in tradition in individual notions of self, selflessness, self-restraint, self-reliance, truthfulness, honor, personal sacrifice, etc., It's not that the founders left these virtues out of the constitution because they considered them dispensable. On the contrary, they were keenly aware of their importance and thought that the type of government that they were proposing would be unimaginable in their absence. On the other hand, they felt that imparting these virtues was best left to the traditions and religious beliefs of the people, a view which was clearly expressed in the Federalist Papers. This imbalance between rights and obligation in Western society, and as we saw, Hazoni described very well the process of this happening. Right. The imbalance is constantly growing, and this, of course, is in tune with a common understanding of the expansion of rights. The left now includes among what it calls rights, not only those guaranteed by the Constitution, 
but also new rights like the right to free health care, free education, free childcare, the right to unrestricted and free abortion, and makes constant political demands in their name. Recently, one even hears voices calling for a guarantee to universal basic income as another human right. Whatever you think about the merits of these new rights, and you can always find justifications, it is hard not to see how when put into practice through vast bureaucratic programs, they reduce personal responsibility and vastly increase the power of the state. This imbalance between rights and responsibility is not only restricted to individuals, it is also affecting our government, societal and cultural institutions. It's pointed out by Yuvan Levin in a series of lectures that he gave at Princeton a few years ago, two, year, two years ago maybe. Uh, these institutions are neglecting their formative responsibilities in, for, in favor of performative actions, he says. He provides a thorough analysis of how congressmen, journalists, judges, and university professors prefer to behave often to the detriment of the institutions they represent as independent actors on the largest stage provided by vastly responsible media. The result is an accelerating lack of trust in the institutions they represent and the decline of social capital, which is essential to the health of, uh, of our republic. This is one of the themes. What about loss of faith? So it's not that our, just that our basic institution, is, as uh, Levine observes, that this, our basic institutions are declining by neglecting the essential responsibilities. Far more worrisome is the fact that the liberal ideas underpinning these institutions are themselves collapsing under const constant barrage of criticism. In other words, people are losing faith in our foundational liberal values. This fact, barely visible in 1978, is an essential part of the present reality of Faulkner's. So the criticism can be traced down to the cultural Marxist and the myriad of critical theory it has generated, including the so-called critical race theory. Examples of outrageous statements based on critical, theory, critical race theory abound. For example, in a recent graphic display during the summer, in fact, at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, the visitors were told that individualism, hard work, stable families, logical thinking, and scientific object, ob objectivity are characteristics of white people. It follows by that logic that any attempt to assert this as universal, universally desirable virtue must be viewed as being racist. It is hard to think of a more perverse and destructive message. Yeah. The 1619 New York Times project is one in which uh, our defining historical moment is not any longer the magnificent declaration of independence in, in 1776, as we all thought, but in fact the arrival of the first slave. So therefore, somehow, American uh, history is, is completely based on racism and slavery. Not that the New York Times, so it's important to know that the New York Times is a news, newspaper of reference for our elites. Everybody reads, especially in university, everybody reads in your Times. I remember many years ago trying to convince the chair of my department to add the Wall Street Journal on display in the common room, room alongside two copies of the New York Times. <laughs> he clearly saw that I was making an unreasonable, crazy demand and told me that I have the option to change this policy when and if I will become chair myself. Of course, I never did. So <laughs> it may be the reason for my asking. So why is the, you, you ask me, why is the balance important? Yeah. So in my article, I state that it's a tragic fact of the human condition 
that important human aspirations and needs such as freedom, justice, equality, personal security, spirituality, and self-expression are if not exactly in contradiction with each other in a state of per per perpetual conflict. Radical equality, for example, as envisioned by Marxism and presently by the woke ideology is incompatible with both freedom and justice and can only be imposed by force. Mm -hmm. It is no accident that both private property and bourgeois style family, which are clearly the greatest sources of inequality in any society, but also great guarantors of individual freedoms were proscribed by Marx in the Communist Manifesto. So he understood pretty well that if you want equality, you better get rid of families and uh, private property. Yeah. Uh, with uh, the obvious consequences that we know. I believe that the extraordinary past success of the Western civilization were due to a very fortunate, naturally evolving, often imperfect, at times broken balance between the human aspirations enumerated above, uh, and at the same time by a precarious equilibrium between reason and faith. Hmm. Such a fortunate balance was manifest in the democratic system of government, the West painfully arrived at in particular here in the United States. I'm firmly convinced that democracy cannot survive, we cannot maintain the balance. A little bit later, we'll turn to that balance and how we might restore it. But I want to zero in on something you said. You used the phrase cultural Marxism. I know all of our listeners will be familiar with that phrase Marxism, but perhaps not with that qualifier. So could you explain for us what is the difference between cultural Marxism and classical Marxism? And where did cultural Marxism come from? Yeah, so... Uh refers to main differences. Uh, let me start by, by saying that uh, Marxism had a coherence, so Marxism, the traditional historic Marxism, of Marx and Engels, uh, had a coherent simplistic view of the world with a clear universalist message. It affirmed the primacy of economics over everything else and affirmed that control of the means of production is the key to understand and manipulate society. The state so uh, it stated this kind of revelation as absolute truth based on scientific principles of what they, Marx and Engels called dialectic materialism. It identified two major classes, proletarians and capitalists, and proclaimed basically out of the blue, is kind of a, totally artificial in our opinion, that the former, in other words, the, proleta the, proletar the proletarian, through revolution would be able to bring to the world the true millennium, where the natural contradictions between freedom and equality will be resolved, and everybody will be able to enjoy them together with unprecedented prosperity. Intoxicated by this vision of a perfect society, firmly based, as they thought, on real science, Marxists became obsessed with taking power, and whenever they did, as we know very well, through insurrection or conquest, their rule descended rapidly into some awful form of totalitarianism. One can really study why did that happen, but maybe that's not uh, what we should talk about this now. Uh, so the question is now, where did this culture Marxist come from? So the question you ask, my understanding, I am not a political scientist, but my understanding is that uh, uh, unlike in the, the underdeveloped Russia, capitalism in the West turned out to be much more enduring than the original Marxist envision, partly because of its remarkable ability that we know pretty well that capitalist has, capitalist has to adapt and reform itself within the cultural traditions and democratic institution in which it operates. The proletariat improved its conditions considerably through various reforms and seemed content to use its thought. Marxists, just like our elites today, 
look down, in fact, on the working class, even though they consider them, the, they, they put them at the top of mm -hmm. what it, they wanted to achieve. Uh, but in reality, they look down on them and consider them too stupid to know what's good for them. This state of affairs led Gramsci to a significant change in Marxist doctrine. And uh, instead of, he says, waiting to see how the inner economic contradiction of capitalism will lead to the unavoidable proletarian revolution prophesized by Marx and Engels, he says, Gramsci, uh, he proposes instead an ideological program to destroy these traditions, the values and the cultural institutions of capitalism. So this was quite a remarkable change yeah. in tone. And uh, it led to this new form of criticism called cultural Marxism, directed at the hegemonic culture through which capitalism maintains its power. The intense focus on criticizing all aspects of Western society with the ultimate aim of weakening and eventually destroying them was continued by the Frankfurt School under the name of critical theory and brought to the US in the 1930s where it found a niche in American colleges and universities and from where it soon started its long, what it's called the long march through American institutions, yeah. which alas, it succeeded all too well apparently. Today, various critical theories dominate entire academic departments such as gender studies, African-American studies, ethnic studies, sociology, education, and provide a growing influence in almost all academic disciplines except maybe in STEM, though even there, maybe not for too long. Right. Uh, take any possible identity group and you can find a critical theory dedicated to it. Critical race theory, for example, analyzes society from the point of view of race. Critical feminist theory is focused on understanding gender inequalities. Critical pedagogy theory criticizes the traditional relationship between teacher and students, which apparently is like the relationship between colonizers and the colonized. Queer theory pushes a vision of a, continu of a continuum of gender and sexual roles opposed to the traditional binary understanding of them that we used to have. Uh, anyway. So uh, that's uh, what I view as this uh, critical Marxist theory. Sure, and you acknowledge in, in your essay, and you just mentioned it there, that the STEM fields so science, technology, engineering, mathematics have managed to escape relatively unscathed from a lot of this critical race theory claptrap. But you add a qualifier, and you did it again, both in what you just said and in your essay, though almost certainly not for long. So tell us, how do you see that changing? What do we stand to lose if STEM, if these hard sciences are corrupted by critical race theory? Yeah, so uh, it's quite simple. I mean, to, to be able to transmit and create new knowledge, STEM disciplines need to have an efficient and fair mechanism to reward merits based only on talent, dedication, and hard work and with no considerations for race, sex, ethnicity, or religious and political views of a particular individual. It, was, it is to a large extent because of this, because this system of merit, in other words, that American universities have been so extraordinarily successful to attract the best people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the importance of merit was also well understood by the way in Soviet Union and other communist countries. They made huge efforts to detect talent through special schools and competitions, such as Olympians, Olympiads in mathematics and, and, and various other sciences. By the way, this competitive spirit is completely absent in the United States, where uh, 
competition is perfectly okay in sports, but not in anything that is to do with mathematics and science. Anyway, uh, this is one of the reasons why, uh, as I said, uh, communist countries actually were pretty good uh, at producing a lot of scientists, in particular a lot of mathematicians. Romanian mathematicians are well known all over the world. Uh, even though everything else in Romanian society was pretty bad, somehow sciences and mathematics were, were, uh, were supported. Uh, now, so this, this is what I call system based on merit. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the social justice warriors, they view this uh, recruiting, which is based only on individual merit, as being at odds and uh, with, with its professed uh, intentions. They view, in fact, any discrepancies of outcomes, they interpret any discrepancy of outcomes independent on intent as illegitimate and based as a claim on prejudice or racism. So you can see here a, a real clash, which cannot lead to anything good. And, yeah. uh, and uh, there are various warning signs, which I can mention. So uh, as a cure for these problems of systemic race, what they call systemic racism, the walk, the social justice warriors, advanced bureaucratic solutions, such as formal and informal quotas, mandatory sensitivity training, and mandatory statement, statements on diversity uh, and inclusion is preconditioned for hiring. Now, this is already, I mean, this is happening also in STEM, so uh, yeah. it's hard to see how this is not going to affect uh, the STEM disciplines. Another serious issue of contention is that all STEM disciplines, in particular mathematics, are founded on strong notions of objective reality, independent of the society in which they were first developed, or of the gender, race, or nationality of the particular individual who studies them. The woke ideology, based on this mishmash of postmodernist critical theories, vehemently denies universal values and truths, even though it makes a notable exception for the validity and necessity of its own social justice creed and activism. Right. It treats both science and mathematics as social constructs and condemns the way they are being exercised in research and teaching as manifestations of white supremacist, Eurocentric, post-colonial bias. For example, in a recent displays, a recent displays of such nonsense appears in a, on a Californian educational program called the Pathway to Equitable Mass Instruction. The program, which is financially supported by Bill and Benita Gates Foundation, acknowledges among, among its partners the Lawrence Hall of Science at UC Berkeley, California Mass Pro Project, Association of California School Administrators, and so on and so forth. Yeah. The, the first it, among the five strides of the program is to dismantle racism based on toxic white supremacist forms of teaching mathematics. So here you are. I mean, <laughs> and there are many other examples which I can give, but we, I'm afraid we don't have that much time. Yeah. Well, um, we recently had, as you know, Rod Dreher on the show to discuss his new book, Live Not by Lies, a Manual for Christian Dissidents. And there's a lot of very important overlap uh, between what you're writing about and speaking about today and what Rod talks about in that book. So I encourage all listeners to, after you finish listening to this conversation, go back and hear what Rod has to say. And Rod traveled throughout the former Soviet bloc, speaking with Christian dissidents who expressed their fear that totalitarianism was coming to the West. Not the hard totalitarianism of the Soviet Union, you know, jackboots at the door in the middle of the night, 
but a soft totalitarianism brought to bear by corporations, universities, by your classmates, your colleagues, your peers, etc., but with the same chilling effect as this hard totalitarianism. So what do you make of all of this? Do you have the same fears? Could this soft totalitarianism take root in America and then even become hard totalitarianism? Yeah, okay, good. So that's, a, that's a, an excellent question, in fact. So uh, I, I very much like uh, Dreher's distinction between soft totalitarianism and, and uh, the hard one. But let, let's, let me go a little bit through uh, what totalitarianism means. Sure. Uh, so first of all, I think we should say that it's an extreme state of a given society which occur when, a, when a, a given ideology is imposed on all aspects of the life of its citizens to the point that all those who resist are either eliminated or marginalized. The hard version as practiced in all communist countries uh, is based on complete control by a highly organized hierarchical elite that is a party, uh, a form, unique party of course, of all means of production, communication, education, security, and cultural institutions. Massive mass surveillance, limited freedom of movement, and extreme forms of suppression, which could be called terror, and all done in the name of imposing correct modes of behavior, thinking, and expression. The subversion, based on a similar imposition of correct forms of expression, is enforced not by a centralized policy power, but rather by social shaming and more punishment. That's the kind of thing that, that uh, Dreyer talks about. People who do not conform are not thrown up in jails or physically eliminated. Worst that can happen to them is to lose leadership positions, jobs, or simply become outcast in their social circle. But strange enough, this seems to be enough to impose conformity for the vast majority of people, especially people in academia for strange reasons. Uh, another thing that uh, is typical to the soft version is uh, the rise of an activist class. Mm -hmm. So in Romania, by the way, there was a clear distinction between normal people willing to achieve success through expertise and, uh, and uh, merit and uh, the activists uh, who were people who would rise in the society by towing the, by towing the party line whatever it was deemed politically correct by the party. In, in the case here in the United States, is, is not a party. there is not such a thing as a party, but there is, of course, I don't know, the social media, for example, that, that seems to control everything. Yeah. Uh, it is happening more and more here. People are promoted based on social activism uh, more and more. Still, it's nothing in, compar in comparison to what happened in communist countries, but uh, the danger is there, is there. The social justice ideology in the name of which this soft totalitarianism is gradually being imposed, has been incubated in academia, it's interesting to note, indoctrinated to generations of students, and then migrated to most of our cultural, religious, and political institutions, as well as some of our most prominent business companies. It's, of course, very hard to oppose it, and it appears to become more and more dominant. And yes, I'm extremely concerned. So uh, then there's a question you asked, is could this soft totalitarianism become hard totalitarianism? Right. Well, it's actually interesting. I, I would say that to me, soft totalitarianism is in fact pre-totalitarianism. So what is pre-totalitarianism? Well, uh, it's a rise of a simplistic, equalitarian, 
social justice type of ideology, we need to reform society, dismantle all the institutions in the name of progress. Everything becomes more and more political. Uh, everything in life is viewed more and more from the perspective of, poli of politics. And uh, it's typical somehow to intellectuals. Intellectuals are, are typically the revolutionary class. It, it thrives in permissive and disciplined society which have largely lost belief in themselves. So it's connected to the crisis of, of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason I'm, I'm saying this, as well as I'm saying that somehow soft totalitarianism is pre-totalitarianism, is because this actually has happened. Uh, we, we have historical example of such situations. So for example, pre-revolutionary pre, pre Russia and the Weimar Republic were exactly in such situations. In, in pre-revolutionary Russia, there was a lot of revolutionary fervent in which uh, uh, intellect, intellectual intelligentsia played a major role. So I recommend, for example, uh, this article, which appeared in First Things, written by Gary Saul Mor Morrison, which is called The Suicide of the Liberals. Another sort of great description of this pre-totalitarianism, the pre-revolutionary, in pre-revolutionary Russia, is a, the, the book by Yuri Sleskin called The House of Government. They all describe the same kind of things, which are sort of similar with soft uh, totalitarianism that is described by, uh, by Rudd in, mm -hmm. uh, in his book. So somehow, to me, uh, yeah, I mean, soft totalitarianism leads to hard totalitarianism. I mean, unless we are careful and unless we are able to resist it, uh, this soft totalitarianism will become hard totalitarianism. We've been talking a little bit about Rod Dreher's book. We've talked a little bit about your experiences in communist Romania, and you've been writing about this a lot recently. And among your many excellent recent articles and essays is a piece you wrote for Newsweek back in September, in which you responded to President Christopher Eisgruber's claim that Princeton University is systemically racist, and that's the phrase he used. And in this piece, you describe some of the tactics proposed by members of the university community to confront this alleged systemic racism, including, as you mentioned, mandatory anti-bias training, committees to review the work of faculty members to ensure it isn't, quote unquote, racist, and the like. And when you see all of this, you write, quote, for those like me who are educated in communist regimes, all this brings in painful memories of indoctrination and forced re-education, as well as their abject failure to produce anything but widespread hypocrisy and repressed conformity, end quote. So here you are explaining what you saw, what you personally lived, and yet people don't seem to be listening. Why is that? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a clearly something that uh, I find it very difficult to explain, in particular, uh, given that uh, we, as we know now that there has been a, a, a clear collapse of these communist regimes in both Eastern Europe and, mm -hmm. and uh, many other places, certainly in Soviet Union. And uh, you would have thought that uh, there would be a, a serious attempt by the intellectual class to analyze what went wrong. Uh, and uh, to my surprise, I don't see it. Uh, I, don't see, I don't see it happening. And uh, the, let me actually go back a little bit uh, and because maybe this is connected to this discussion about pre-totalitarianism. Yeah, please. Uh, so you see, and 
one of the things that we see, and again, th this was definitely true also the Weimar Republic and, and uh, pre-1917 uh, Russia, is that this enormous imbalance between uh, liberal and conservative ideas among elites. The elites seem to somehow have completely uh, embraced uh, progressive ideas. Uh, for example, in uh, our most elite universities, we know now that there are at most 2% who donate to Republicans. The same thing happening in media, in government, and more and more in top businesses. In uh, Washington, the District of Columbia, where our main government institutions are located, 93% vote Democrat and less than 6% 6, 6 Republican. I mean, th there is an imbalance, it's enormous. Yeah. The means of communication and education are almost completely controlled by liberals and progressives. And, uh, you know, people say that uh, academia doesn't have power. It's just not true. Academia has huge power. In fact, many of the big ideas which we know are developed and then transmitted to the rest of society from yeah. universities. I mean, universities educate the kids. <laughs> the kids become later on. They take positions in, uh, in media or in uh, cultural institutions or government or so on and so forth. So obviously, uh, the influence of universities is enormous. And if there is, there is such a huge imbalance at universities, and there is, without doubt, then obviously you expect to have uh, sort of serious consequences uh, for the rest of society. Uh, the growing inequality, of course, is another fact that is typical to pre-revolutionary situations. Mm. Uh, but, but inequality is not just economic. It's, uh, and as we see here in the United States, it's not just economic inequality, which of course is, is significant, but it's also an inequality based on power to influence events. Uh, the power seems to become more and more concentrated. Yeah. And uh, so uh, to go back to the question, I, I think this is a reason why people would not listen <laughs> because they are already indoctrinated. They believe, they believe somehow that uh, uh, some kind of socialism or communism or any nowadays, okay, you know, the woke ideology is some, slightly different, but still based on the idea of social justice and equality, Radical equality, and uh, uh, as more and more people are indoctrinated to this, obviously they are not going to listen to me uh, telling them what went wrong. They will say that, you know, whatever I experienced in Romania was just an isolated incident. Uh, they constantly, in fact, they constantly claim that uh, whenever they are faced with another failure of communism, wherever, wherever in the world, they will say that yeah, well, this was a bad experiment. We are going to do it differently now. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and uh, of course. It's always the same story. Uh, it turns out into tragedy. Anyway. So as I mentioned, uh, you are the Eugene Higgins Professor of Mathematics at Princeton University, a recipient of the so-called MacArthur Genius Prize, one of the most well-regarded mathematicians, not only in the country, but in the world. And yet here we are recording a more than hour-long conversation about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Why have you decided to speak out and wade into these culture wars? Good question. So uh, I, I only started to write. I never wrote anything outside mathematics. Uh, I only started to write in July. In fact, uh, I was alarmed by the July 4 letter, uh, faculty letter here at Princeton University. Right. Uh, I was alarmed by the way Joshua Katz was treated as a consequence of, uh, of his reply. Uh, another thing is that I do feel a sense of responsibility for a country that treated me extremely well. Uh, I owe everything, in fact, to the United States. I mean, I, I, 
you know, I, I can just imagine what would have happened to me if I stayed in Romania, uh, if I did not have this incredible opportunity to come here. I also feel that I have nothing to lose. I don't think, I mean, people think that it requires an act of courage. I don't think it's an act of courage. Hmm. I mean, after all, we have tenure and nothing, not much can happen to me except that maybe I, I will lose somehow, lose uh, maybe the friendship of certain people who uh, think very differently. That's too bad. But I don't think it's anything compared with the kind of uh, risk that people are taking uh, by in communist country by by fighting the regime yeah. and by speaking out against the regime like Solzhenitsyn did. Uh, that require real courage. This is what I did. Uh, it's not that much courage at all. I mean, it's just, uh, I feel it's just a responsibility. Uh, I also believe in action and I'm sufficiently optimistic that we can reverse things if we act, but we have to act. So what would you say to colleagues of yours, either at Princeton or peers at other institutions or students who might be thinking some of the same things you are, experiencing some of the same things you are, they're just as disturbed by it as you are. What would you say to them? What would you say to them to encourage them to speak out and do, as you call it, their responsibility, their duty? Yeah, by the way, so that, that's, that's another reason why I decided to speak out. I, I thought that I could influence other people to speak yeah. out. And, uh, well, let's see. I mean, it might happen. I, I, you know, people need examples of other people who, who speak out. Uh, right. And they will also realize that, after all, nothing terrible happened to me by speaking out. So <laughs> well, I don't know. You're being forced to talk to me on this podcast. So that's pretty <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's the worst that can ha- has happened to me. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I will tell them, uh, to my colleagues, is that, first of all, Really, you have tenure. I mean, I'm talking about those who have tenure. Those who don't have tenure, it's a different story. And I, I think they should be, maybe they should not risk. Uh, they, could lose, they could lose a chance of maybe be promoted to tenure. But anyway, for those who have tenure, uh, I mean, after all, the tenure was supposed to, uh, was introduced exactly to protect people to speak out. I mean, That's right. you, know, you, you don't have any excuse. You should speak out. Uh, and, uh, you know, I love this uh, statement, or this article, actually, that Solzhenitsyn in the world, which is lived by, not by lies, in which she explains, I, I, you know, I suggest that everybody reads it, uh, that article. Uh, it's, again, the, the risk in communist Russia at the time when, when uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote this article was infinitely higher than anything that we face here today. Yeah. And I think we can still reverse it by speaking out, by by doing things, we can still reverse all these terrible things that are happening. Uh, I'll put a link to Alexander Solzhenitsyn's essay, Live Not By Lies, in the show notes. And like the professor said, everyone should go and read that. Now, we're running a little bit long here, so I have one final question for you. And you conclude your reflections on Solzhenitsyn's Harvard address by asking the following questions of your audience. Can the process we are witnessing be reversed? Can the old balance be restored? How? So as we draw to a close here in our conversation, I want to ask you those same questions and get your thoughts on them. Can the process we are witnessing be reversed? Can the old balance be restored? How? Uh, well, you, you really put me on the line here. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a, it's a very, yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, first of all, I, I, you know, human societies are not closed physical system where, where the second law of thermodynamics apply. If they were, then there would be no hope. 
but they are not. And uh, we can redress things by, by taking actions. But the first thing we have to do is to identify the problems. Uh, so what are they? I mean, I, I mean, there are many, and some of them we have already discussed, but I will add that there is a, this fundamental contradiction between what progressive and conservative want uh, this is normal, after all. Uh, there's nothing wrong. People have different opinions about how society should be structured. Uh, but what is a problem is this huge imbalance uh, within our elite cultural institutions between liberal and conservatives, which I mentioned before. This kind of imbalance has some kind of balance has to be restored. I mean, this imbalance is is is, is really, to a large extent, at the heart of the the type of imbalance that uh, I talked in, the, in that article on Solzhenitsyn. Uh, we have reasons to be pessimistic, but also an obligation to fight. Mm. We need to, uh, uh, to create a program of action. Uh, yeah, by the way, maybe I should say, so to be a little bit more in tune with my thoughts, uh, I, might, I may be pessimistic about the possibilities of redressing the situation and, and recreating the balance. It's very difficult, but I feel we, we still have an obligation to try. And uh, here is maybe something like a program of action. Uh, I would say we need to create programs like the Madison program in all our universities. This is a fantastic, the Madison program is really wonderful. And it, it, it is an attempt starting, I, I think, with, with uh, Robbie George, yeah. to redress the situation, the imbalance in our universities. Absolutely. First at Princeton and later on in maybe many other places. We have to find the nonsense produced by many schools of education in our universities. I mean, they, they have a terrible, I, mean, I really think they have a terrible impact on education, in particular on mass education. And I, I really actually hope to write an article soon on, on the terrible impact that they have. Uh, uh, create maybe new universities. I mean, if, if, if universities are, cannot be reformed, maybe we have to create new universities. Uh, or if not universities, maybe new forms of advanced education for our students. Uh, push more energetically for schools which are outside the domain of influence of unions and, and these uh, schools of education. So this would be maybe charter schools or vouchers and so on and so forth. Uh, Another thing that I find uh, surprising that nobody talks about it is why not move, since there is so much central, centralization of power in, in, uh, in DC, and DC as a consequence, I don't know, is 95% Democrat, yeah. uh, totally unrepresentative of the situation in the country. Why, why don't we move the government institution from DC all over the country? I mean, to me, that sounds like a, a relatively simple solution uh, to make uh, the politics of the country more representative, I mean, to make the bureaucracy of government more representative to the rest of the country. Uh, there is no reason nowadays to have a centralized location. It may have been the case at uh, the beginning of our republic, uh, but not now. I mean, now right. there's absolutely no reason. Uh, create new me media outlets. I mean, the media is totally dominated, again, by the left. Well, create new media outlets. We have another kind of actions that I should talk about. It's this alliance of our academic freedom, uh, which is uh, organized here at Princeton. Princeton, by the way, has, has taken initiative in defense of academic freedoms all over the country. Uh, this alliance of academic freedom is one example where we, we hope uh, a group 
of us again uh, organized around Rabbi George hopes to uh, to really defend everybody who is being attacked or being cancelled uh, on the basis of, uh, of free speech. Princeton, in fact, is leading the way in, in, in other ways. For example, we, we have this Princeton Open Campus Coalition. It's an undergraduate uh, an organization, which is wonderful. Uh, and they are doing great things. Finally, let me end with the following. Uh, we should stop lamenting the gravity of the situation and do something. So in my Quillette piece, How to Fight the Enemies of Enemic Freedom, I ended, I mean, I, I, I put there, uh, paraphrasing the famous uh, speech by Churchill, the we shall fight on the beaches. Uh, and all this uh, with the hope of uh, generating a similar sense of mobilization. So here it is, even though large tracts of our cultural landscape and many old and famous American institutions have fallen or may fall into the grip of the hostile ideology and all the odious apparatus of cancel culture rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in our university. We shall fight in our schools. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the old media, as well as the social media. We shall defend our culture reforming what is in need to reform, but preserving our core principles and institutions, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight in the world of ideas. We shall fight in the lowlands of politics and Hollywood. We shall fight in our religious institutions. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. I can't think of a better note to end on than that. Professor Sergio Kleinerman, thank you so much for speaking out. Thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was, it was really a pleasure. There you have it, Professor Sergio Kleinerman. We're so blessed to have him here at Princeton University, and I think we'd all be better off if we were to follow his example and refuse to live by lies. I'll go ahead and put some links in the show notes to the various articles and essays we mentioned throughout the conversation. I think they're all worth your time. We went a little long today, so we'll go ahead and get out of here now. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.